I'm excited to get into our new message series called Reframe, and it says a biblical guide to health and wellness. That's true. Um, I had somebody ask me, Pastor, are we going to be doing eight weeks of like a, a weight loss workshop or something? Are we like keeping track of all our food? You can do that if you want to, but that's not what this is about. We're looking at what the Bible has to say about our overall health, and how many know your overall health is all of you? It's all of you, right? And so as we get into this over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about a lot of different things. But before we even get into that, and I'll tell you more what it's going to be about in just a second, I have a question for you. My question is this, has anyone in this room ever set out to make a change? Let me see your hand. I'm just looking. Okay, there's a couple people who've never changed anything. You could change that right now and just raise your hand and then say, I'm making a change. Raise my hands in church for the first time, Pastor. I grew up Southern Baptist and we don't do that. Uh, and then, Anyway, that's another story for another time. Some of you set out to make a change, oh, I don't know, about 28 days ago. How's that going so far? How's that going so far? Yeah. So I kind of set out to make some changes. I decided, man, listen, I got I to gotta steward this beautiful gift of a body that the Lord gave me. And, uh, and so I've been trying to pay a little better attention to what I put into my mouth and also increase my activity level. And things were going pretty good. And then two weeks ago, I got strep and COVID at the same time. I mean, no, that'll mess you up. You get strep and COVID at the same time. So I like didn't eat anything for a couple of days and then we get out of sync. And then I rolled into last week, which was my birthday week. I mean, you get a whole week if you do it right. It's your birthday week. Uh, so it's your birthday week, birthday month. I know Stacy said birthday month. That's what my wife says too. So from August 1st, the 31st, that's all Ashley's birthday, just so you all know. Um, and she'll receive gifts every 31 days, especially for me. Uh, but you get a whole birthday month if you're some of these folks. But my birthday came around, and I thought, man, I'm still going to be good on my birthday. And then Deanna showed up in my house with a key lime pie on the night of my birthday. And how could I possibly say no to that? So I get strep. I get COVID. I can't work out for a while. I did one workout that week, which was crazy. And then next thing you know, I'm eating key lime pie on Monday night this past week. And about Wednesday, I told my wife, I said, you got to help me. This thing is already getting shaky. Uh, so keep asking me the questions. We got to pay attention to this. But do you know why it's so hard to make changes? Because change is hard. We're creatures of habit. We want to keep doing the same thing. And so most of the time when we set out to make changes, these kind of scenarios come along. Something's going to happen. Your birthday's going to come. Your wife's, your husband's, your friend's, somebody's birthday's going to, you have a reason to celebrate, all right? And then all of a sudden, things start to shift. Things start to shift. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. God created you and me actually to thrive. He did. Bible says that he came that we would have life and life more abundantly. And we'll talk about that more in a minute. But he created you to thrive, hear me, in spirit, soul, and body. That's all of you. That's everything. And so that's what this series is going to be about quite a bit. Because when we, when we get aligned, spirit, soul, and body with God's word, that's where change can actually happen. You ever heard somebody say, people never change? Maybe you've said it. Maybe somebody you were really counting on to make some changes did it. And then you decided people never change. Well, here's the thing. I'm a pastor. I see people give their hearts to Jesus and things change. Things absolutely can change. The Bible actually teaches things must change if you meet Jesus. And one of the things I love about the Bible is that it gives us a practical framework for what we would call inside-out living. How many know if you try to start with a new behavior that you don't actually want to continue in, you won't continue in it. You know what I'm talking about? You, we oftentimes want to want to do stuff, and so we'll change for like a day, you know? It's like, how's that fast going? Pretty good, between dinner and breakfast, okay, right? And then I break fast at breakfast, right? We, if we don't really want to change, then we just don't, then we just don't. But when we come to God's word and we read it, 
and then we apply it. Everybody say apply. Apply it. That's right. When we apply it, the biblical wisdom, the practical wisdom, the instruction, the spiritual transformation, we get more than just outward temporary behavior modification, but we actually can be transformed, leading to lasting change and purpose in every area of our life. That is what this series is going to be all about. By the way, during this series, you're going to hear some stuff that you've heard before because there's some things that need to be repeated often. You're going to hear some new things that maybe you haven't ever heard before. And I hope that all of it, as you hear it, is helpful for you. Uh, The Bible says in Jeremiah 29, 13, and you will seek me and find me When, everybody say when, when you search for me with all your heart. And this is the problem right here. The reason that most people never change, the reason that most people never surrender everything to God, the reason that people never truly find their purpose in God is because they have failed to seek him with all of their heart. Oh, you can have part of it. Meanwhile, the Bible is saying, if when all of it, you'll find it. Now, this series is going to be broken into really kind of two parts. For the first four weeks, we're going to talk about things like faith, perspective, time, habits. And then on the back end of it, we're going to get into the mind, will, emotions, mental health, physical health, relational health, and how we become all that God has caused us to be. But today, we have to start with the first things first, and that is your spiritual life. And I want to talk to you today about how to reframe your faith. Quick show of hands again. I know I'm making y'all do stuff. 11 o'clock. Who by a show of hands has ever had a crisis of faith? You're like, I can't believe this just happened. Is God real? Does God care? Is he for me? Yeah. Somebody going through some right now, right? Crisis of faith. We have to learn when we come up against those crises in our faith, how to reframe our faith back to what the Bible actually has to say about us, about God, about our purpose. Proverbs 9.10 says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. What does that mean? Here's what it means. To fear God is to know God, to know God is to love God. And the meaning, the meaning of God's love, the meaning of God's love must result in transformation or you haven't experienced it yet. God's love means something, and it means that when you encounter it, something changes. Something changes. We all know we live in America. We live in the West. The number one killer of people in our part of the world is heart disease. This is probably because they're doing all kinds of crazy stuff to our food. Some of y'all have gone down the wormhole, the stuff they're spraying, the chemicals they put in everything. I don't even have time for that. Take me to coffee and tell me all about it because I want to learn more. There's something in our food that is killing us and causing heart disease. And it's more than just activity and it's more than just barbecue. I don't understand it all, but I do know it's killing people by the millions. But there's something even more devastating than that. And that is this. That is this. Spiritual heart disease is the number one barrier that is standing between where you are and where God is calling you to be. And more people are dealing with that than they are with natural heart disease. Now, of course, God knows this, which is why he gave us his word. And I gotta tell you, it's pretty difficult to actually read the word of God and not realize that there is spiritual heart disease in people all over. Have you read the Old Testament lately? Anybody spent some fun time in the book of Judges? Woo, it's a tough one. Spiritual heart disease all over God's people, and it's killing them. And the reason that the Bible is constantly talking about the heart is because the heart is a metaphor for the inner life. If you're taking notes, write that down. The heart is a metaphor for the inner life. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 
8, God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. You haven't moved quite enough. Who would like to see God? Yeah, let me see your hand. Who wants to see God? Come on, it's Participation Church today. We might change the name for the next 15 minutes to Participation Church. Participation. I want to see God. Well, how do you do that? Jesus says, have a pure heart, and your blessing will be that you get to see God. You see him now, what he's doing now. You see him tomorrow, what he's doing tomorrow. Oh, and you fix your eyes on him, and you will see him for all of eternity, because that's where you're going if you trust in him. And when you see this word heart used in scripture, it's trying to get at the seat of who you are, physically, spiritually, mentally. And it's hard for us to understand as Westerners because we like to separate everything. We like to be individualistic. We like to put everything into nice little boxes. And we also like to kind of define ourselves not by who we are, but by what we do. I mean, after all, when you go to a mixer or a cocktail party or some, a seminar or a conference or wherever you go to meet people, after they maybe ask you your name, what's the next thing they ask you? What do you what do you do? Thank you. Stacy's been to all of those things. What do you do? That's what people ask. They want to know, what do you do? Do you know what I've never been asked at a single event like that? No one, Angela, has ever asked me, so who are you? Who are you? But what I like to do is when people ask me, what do you do? I like to answer with who I am. What do you do? Well, man, I'm a, I'm a believer in Jesus and a follower of Jesus. And I'm a husband uh, to Ashley. I love her. And I've got all these crazy kids that I'm trying to raise in the faith and hoping that they'll follow Jesus too. And uh, I, just, I just go into who I am. And some of that is because I have to constantly remind myself, I'm not just what I do. You're not just what you do. In fact, that's an outflow thing. That's, a, that's a what comes next as a result of who you are. And your faith, your faith has to be central in all of this. Now, Jesus always gets at the heart. He always taught to the heart. It was his signature move. Mark 1.22 says the people were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority. Here we go, a little slight, quite unlike the teachers of the religious law. You want to know why the primaries? I mean, yes, he was God. Okay, he's got a little leg up. Yes, he was perfect. That helps. Yes, he was always righteous. That helps some more. Yes, he was always filled with the Holy Spirit. By the way, you can be too if you want to. But what he really had going for him is that he taught to the heart. Pharisees always talking about the external, the external, the outside. What do you do? Are you being obedient? Are you doing all the little things? And Jesus says, yeah, but what about your heart? And this was one of the reasons he had so much beef with the Pharisees, because they were missing the point of it all. And they're supposed to be the ones who are leading God's people to the heart of God. They're all focused on all the extra stuff. But this is why he comes and talks to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 27. It says, what sorrow awaits you, O teachers of religious law? You Pharisees, hypocrites, exclamation point. I don't know if he really said the exclamation point, but it was fun to say that. He, he goes on. You're like whitewashed tombs. You're beautiful on the outside. And on the inside, the dead people's bones, you are filled with all sorts of impurity. Now, I know y'all come to church, everybody's smiling. Oh, it's so good to see you. I'm just curious, though. If you met someone and they said, oh, man, great haircut. Your haircut is on point. By the way, that outfit is your fit. That is a good fit. I like those shoes. They fit you perfectly. Those look amazing. But the stench of your rotten soul smells like a grave. And everyone who smells it should run from you. We laugh. That's what Jesus had to say to the Pharisees. Sweet Jesus. So sweet. But he told them what they needed to hear. He told them what was true. 
Jesus cared about the inside. What's going on in here? Now, what are you doing? Who are you? That's the question. What did Jesus have to say about murder, by the way? Matthew 5, 21, 22. You've heard our ancestors. They told you, you must not murder. And if you commit murder, you're subject to judgment. Okay, we all got that. Oh, but wait, there's more. Little Paul Harvey, the rest of the story. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. How about that? He's equating your anger inside, that rage that you feel, with the act of murder, right? What does he say to the self-righteous? John 8, 7 and 9. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up and said, all right, all right, but let the one who has never sinned cast the first stone. What's going on here? This story comes from the story of a woman who has been caught in adultery. I always wonder, why did they catch the woman, not the man, if they caught him in adultery? Where was he? But anyway, that's where my brain goes. Probably one of those about to throw a stone. And Jesus comes and says, oh, hold on, so time out, time out. Let him without sin cast the first stone. And then it says he got down to write in the ground. And nobody really knows, but a lot of people think, and I sort of like to think because it makes for a better story, that he was looking around and he was going, oh, hey, Bob, hold on a second. Bob, and writes his sin in the sand. Oh, hey, Steve, that big stone in your hand, come read this. And the Bible says that when his accusers heard it, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. You care about the heart. What's going on in your heart? Oh, I see the stone in your hand. I know Moses gave you a right to throw it. But what's going on in your heart? How about adultery? Matthew 5, 27, 28. If I haven't stepped on your toes enough, let's keep going. I'll let Jesus do some of this. You've heard the commandment say you must not commit adultery, but I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What does Jesus care about? The last word on the screen right now. That's what he cares about. You see, a man who commits adultery, that's not the, last, that's not the first bad decision that he made. He made 100 bad ones before that moment, right? Man, we talked about this at Forge. You've got to make 100 bad decisions before you get to something like that. That decision doesn't happen in a vacuum most of the time. Most of the time, the outflow of extremes of lust, extremes of anger, murder, extremes of greed, theft, right? Those extreme places that we go to, you get there one step at a time. And so Jesus says, yeah, 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 that's bad. We all agree that's bad. But what I'm even more concerned with than that is how you got there, which started in here. And if we can fix it in here, we don't actually have to worry about that. That never happens if we fix what's in here first. So these same Pharisees trying to stump Jesus, they come and ask him, okay, all right, wise teacher, what is the greatest commandment of all the law and prophets? And he answers in Matthew 22, 37, he says, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Oh, by the way, a second one is equally as important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. You know what he's saying? He's saying, love Yes, 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 love is important. Also, love is an action. And then that action must be congruent with the heart and with God's heart. Otherwise, it's not love. It's something else. Now, another thing Jesus is doing here is he's quoting from Deuteronomy, a well-known excuse me, passage that the Jews of the day would have known because they had to quote it twice a day. Now, there is something really good about doing something habitually if your heart's in it. There's something really bad about doing it if your heart is not in it. Because then it just becomes meaningless, something that you do. And unfortunately, this powerful prayer, this powerful prayer that Moses gave as a centerpiece of his sermon, his last sermon to the people of Israel before they went to the promised land, he gives them this prayer. 
hoping that it would become an anchor for their hearts. Instead, it just had become perfunctory and religious. But Jesus ties this. He's saying, what's the greatest? Oh, it's this. It's this. It's this, but also it's to your neighbors. Equally so. Equally so. And he's quoting, basically, from Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5, where it says this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord alone, love the Lord with, excuse me, love the Lord your God with all your, here we go, heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. He knew they would knew it. Again, they had to pray it twice a day. Twice a day they had to do this. But he's bringing this back in when they say, what's the most important? It's this. And it's also to love your neighbor as yourself. And so for the rest of our time today, as we learn to reframe our faith, I want to actually take a step back so that we can take a step forward and break down this prayer that comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. It is called the Shema. So we're going to look at number one. What does that mean? Shema means to hear. It means to hear. Shema means to hear. It means to pay attention and respond. Listening, by the way, is the same as obeying. So the Shema means I will listen and I will obey. In the Hebrew language, there is no actual word for obey. It's the, it's the same. It's the word is hear. To hear is to obey. Have you ever been talking to somebody and you know that they're not listening? I won't call you out. There's like three of you right now, but um, I'm just kidding. Everyone's locked in. Have you ever told somebody a story and you're like, you're talking, talking. It's okay, Andrew, I forgive you. You're talking and talking and then you ask them a question. They're like, I don't know. What what did you say? You're not hearing me. Oh, better yet, you're in some like intense fellowship with your spouse and you're trying to communicate something really important and they're just not getting it. You're not hearing me. I'm listening. I know, but you're not hearing me. We all know there's a difference between listening and hearing. And hearing is demonstrated by action, whether that is reflective listening. I heard you to say, and you get it right. Or I heard what you need, and I do it. This is what this is talking about. And James, by the way, great disciple James knew this when he wrote in his first chapter, verse 22, don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, what? You're only fooling yourselves. By the way, this Shema prayer, we, uh, we gave you, there's a couple resources that if you haven't picked up yet to start your year off, it's still January. Get going. We have a 2024 prayer guide that's out there that was not just for our three days of prayer and fasting. That's for the whole year. Lots of great prayers in there. We also have our Honest to God devotional. And in that Honest to God devotional on page 249, you will find the Shema prayer. You too can go back. You can look at it. and It'll help you learn how to pray it. But we're going to keep learning today. Let's keep going. Number two, the next word I want to break down here is this word, Lord. And on our slide, we probably should have put it in all caps because when you read it in your Bible, what you're going to see is it's going to be all caps, L-O-R-D, all capitalized. When you see that, when you see the word Lord, all caps in your Bible, what you should actually read in your mind is the, the name Yahweh. So when you look at the scripture in Hebrew, instead of seeing the Lord, you're going to see Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, the tetragrammatron they call it, the covenant name of God. Right? And this was the name that God gave to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 in the burning bush. He says, I'm Yahweh. And when he sent Moses back, he says, you go tell Pharaoh that Yahweh sent you. See, if Pharaoh would have went and just said, the Lord has sent me. He said, what Lord? I'm the Lord. That's what Pharaoh's response would have been. No, no. Yahweh sent me. Now, the Bible nerd in me wishes I had 10 extra minutes to go down a wormhole of why your Bible says L-O-R-D and not Y-H-W-H or Yahweh. That's for another time. But what you need to know is, if you look at it in the Hebrew, you'll see what I'm talking about. God has a covenant name. His name is Yahweh. It's like if I, every time I referred to Raya, I just called him person. That's what it's like when we just say God or Lord all the time. It's, it's got a, it's, his name is Raya, Yahweh. 
right? This is God's name. So he's telling Moses, go. And by the way, this God, this Yahweh, he is the one who was, who is, who forevermore will be. By the way, he made you. You were his idea. And he can be trusted. He can be trusted. He's not just the God of all time, past, present, and future. He is your God of your time, past, present, and future. Book of Revelation in 22, 13 says, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. God is saying, hey, 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 I'm everything. Now, listen and obey. Trust me, I'm behind you, I'm for you, I'm with you, I thought of you, I loved you enough to make you and to bring you into this world. So, because of that, we can respond to God's ahava, his love, number three. This is a term of affection, of care that one person shows to another, and it's a broad term. It encompasses a lot of different kinds of love. When we get over into the Greek, we have five different words used for this word, ahava, and in English we just say love. So we got it simple, we got a little more robust, and now we got simple again. But I want to drill down on this idea of love for just a minute. Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8 says this, the Lord did not set his heart on you and choose you because you were more numerous than all the other nations, for you were the smallest of all nations. In other words, I didn't choose you because you were great. I chose you because you weren't. Rather, it was simply that the Lord loves you, and he was keeping the oath that he had sworn to your ancestors. We have to always remember, God does not love us because we earned his love. He doesn't love us because we deserve his love. He loves us, let's break this down a little further, because A here, God's love originates from his own character. He is love, so that's what he has to give, right? He loves us because he loves us. He has no beginning, he has no end, he is everlasting, so is his love. 1 John 4, 16 says this, we know how much God loves us, and we have put our trust in his love. God is love, and all who live in love, live in God, and God lives in them. In a very righteous context, we could see this expressed between a husband and the way he loves his wife, or parents and how they love their children. By the way, when you see a husband that stopped loving his wife, the problem that he actually has is he stopped carrying the heart of God inside of his. When parents stop loving their children, it's not because their children are little terrors. It's because they no longer carry the heart of God in their heart. So the outflow is they can't love anymore. They don't know what love is. If you don't know God, if you don't carry his heart, you have a lot of things to give away, but love is not one of them. Because God is love. Right? God is love. Now, B, God chooses to love. He actually makes a choice. God's love is a feeling and an action. That's what a real choice is. Right? A choice is like, I decided and I'm acting on it. I've chosen. Right? You made a choice. And the Bible tells us about the choice that God made in John 3.16, perhaps one of the most memorized verses in all of Scripture. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son, his only begotten son, his only unique son. Whatever version you want to read it, Jesus is special. The Father gave him so that everyone who believes in him would not perish but have eternal, everlasting, never-ending life. So we see this, then see, we have to respond to God's love. Write that down, respond. Now I wanna just, I wanna just mess with you for a second and I wanna submit to you that every single thing you do, yes, every single thing you do is a response to God's love. It's either, the response is either 
I don't know about your love. I'm not in agreement with your love. I don't want to know about your love, so I'm going to respond as if you don't love. Or it's, I see your love, I see what you've done for me, and I'm going to respond accordingly. God is love. God is at the center of all things. Therefore, everything that you do is in some way, shape, or form a response to his love, for good or for bad, for acceptance or rejection. Now, 1 John 3.16, this is over in the epistle, not in the gospel, says this, we know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. But we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. This is how we know God's love, that he gave his life first. That's how we can love him. Some of you have been going to church as long as I have. You might remember the old song. Oh, how I love Jesus. Remember this one? Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Why? Because he first loved me. Right? Why do we sing stuff like that? So to get the truth from our head to our hearts. This is true. Now continuing on in 1 John, down in chapter 4, verses 19 and 20, he says, we love each other. Why? We just sang it. Because he loves us first. He did it first. And if someone says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer, that person is a, I'll let you say it. What are they? A liar. Some of y'all are like, woo, that sounds mean. I'm just having you read your Bible. It's not my job to protect you from your Bible. If you hate a fellow believer and say you love God, you're a liar. If we don't, Love people that we can see. How can we even say that we love God who we cannot see? So we listen. We obey. We respond by loving God and loving others. But all of that, for it to be real, has to come from the love, from the heart. Now, I have to tell you, the Hebrew people, they, had, they did not have a concept of brain like we have concept of brain. So when they talk about the mind, when you read the word mind in your Old Testament, if you dig into that in the Hebrew, what you're actually going to find is a totally different word called kilyot, and that word actually means kidneys. So they had dissected a few animals, and they saw that the blood ran through and was filtered through these kidneys, and they thought, oh, this is the filter, and the life is in the blood, so everything we do must come through the blood, and then it gets distilled, filtered, thought about, processed, in the kidneys. And so that was their concept early of what the mind is. But the language is less important. You'll see them put the kidneys and the heart together. It's like, okay, this thing's pumping the blood and this thing's filtering the blood and everything about your life is in your blood. Therefore, these two things together, that's sort of your all and all, the essence of who you are. So when they use this kilyat and live together, they're trying to describe the central most parts of your being. And it's saying here, when this word is used, it's encompassing all of who you are. It's saying, you got to know in your heart. You got to understand in your heart. Wisdom will dwell in your heart. You're going to feel pain in your heart. By the way, the concept of being heartbroken comes from the Bible. When that part of you that gets broken by pain occurs, that is because your heart is breaking. The essence of your very being is being shattered, and we now call it heartbroken. This is where you experience distress and stress and fear. This is also where your joy and your happiness resides. Your heart is where your thoughts, motives, desires, and affections, write that down, are. When you see heart, it's not this, and it's not even like kind of how you feel. It's the essence of who you are. And throughout the Bible, the story we see is that people hardened their hearts and turned away from God. Why? Because the heart is where the sin problem is. I don't know if you know this or not, but your sin problem is not when you give someone that famous wave when they cut you off in traffic. That single finger salute. 
That's a problem. But that's not the biggest problem. The problem isn't when you lie, cheat, or steal. The problem is in your heart that leads to and allows and provokes those kinds of behaviors. This is why David, I'll recap this quickly because I'm going to run out of time. I know you guys heard about it at Forge, but I can't give you Psalm 51 until I give you the backstory of David. David, he should have been at war, but instead he's at the palace and he looks on the rooftop of a house nearby. And oh, what does he see but a beautiful naked woman bathing and says, I have to have her. Somebody bring her to me. Oh, sir, that's Uriah's wife. I don't care. I want her anyway. He brings her. He lays with her. She conceives a child. Now he's got a problem. So he calls for Uriah to come back from war. Hey, Uriah, good to see you, buddy. Doing a great job. Go home. Have some wine and some time with your wife. Know what I'm saying? Uriah says, I can't do that. I'm too honorable for that. My men are fighting. I'll sleep right here with the king's guards. I'm not going home. I'm not going to do that right now. Now David's got a bigger problem. So he sends Uriah back out, has him killed, and takes Uriah, excuse me, takes Bathsheba now as his own wife. And eventually the prophet Nathaniel comes and says, David, you are in sin. In fact, he uses a whole story to have David condemn himself. It's fascinating reading. You should read it sometime. But once David finally comes to the place where He doesn't just know he's done wrong, but he understands that he is wrong. Psalm 51.10 captures, actually the whole chapter captures his prayer. But here's what he says in verse 10. Create in me a pure what? Heart. Oh, God. And renew a steadfast, a steady, a committed spirit within me. You know what a good prayer of repentance is not? God, please forgive me for what I did. But that's how most people pray repentance. God, please forgive me for what I did. That's an important step, and he will forgive you. And you need that for the next part to take place. A better prayer, though, is God, change my heart so that I never want to do this again. That's what repentance looks like. Now, I'm sorry for what I did. Forgive me. No, I never want to. I don't want to want this. I don't want to think this. I don't want to believe this. And I definitely don't want to do this. But more than all, I don't want to be this. Change my heart, oh God. Make it pure again. The Old Testament prophet Jeremiah, when he saw the wickedness of a whole nation turning against God, he responded with Jeremiah 17, 9 saying, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? The prophet Ezekiel, speaking about the new covenant that you and I now get to live in, had this to say about the heart. He said, and I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you, and I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And understanding all this, Jesus says in Matthew 15, 11, what goes in someone's mouth does not defile them. Thank you, Lord. Although it does affect the waistline, but it doesn't defile your soul. Look what he says here, but what comes out of your mouth, that's what defiles it. You want to know why? Because it reveals what's in your heart. From the abundance of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. But what comes out of here came from here. This is the reason that Jesus told Nicodemus when he said, what do I have to do to be saved to inherit the kingdom of heaven? He says, oh, you, you, it's not all that stuff you've been doing, Mr. Nicodemus, teacher of the law. You have to be born again. You have to be completely changed. Then and only then can we love God with our entire, I'm going to still continue to break this down, nefesh, the soul. This word nefesh, by the way, this Hebrew word nefesh, which translates to soul, it appears over 700 times in the Old Testament. In the Bible, it's referring to life itself. Your soul is, you can write this down, you. It is your life. It is your living, breathing, physical being. And this is why Jesus says in Matthew 16, 25, if you try to hang on to that, to that life, you will what? Lose it. If you try to hang on to it, you'll lose it. But if you give it up for my sake, 
you will save it. Guys, this is the upside down kingdom. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. He who wants to save his life will lose it and he who will give up his life for my sake will save it. This is why one of the greatest gifts that Jesus gave you is not actually forgiveness. Oh, as great as that is. And you have to be forgiven and able to even approach God. But that forgiveness, that's like the starting line. That's like when you go to the wedding and you say, I do. Everything just begins there. You gotta have that. But what comes next is even better. Jesus gives you a new heart that results in a new life. Paul understood this when he wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, the new life has become. Hey, when somebody tells you people don't change, you point them to 2 Corinthians 5, 17. It says, oh, no, 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 no. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things are new. A new life has come. A new life has begun. And that new life in Christ is meant to be, hear me, hear me. It is meant to be a rich, satisfying, joy-filled, peace-saturated, abundant life. We've talked about John 10.10 10 a few times in all of our spiritual warfare stuff. The thief's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. But what does the rest of us say? My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. Some versions say life and life more abundantly. Life and life to the whole. A good life. And finally, the Shema prayer ends with this interesting word, miad. It translates as strength. This word appears 300 times, but it does not actually mean strength in the way that we think of strength. We think like raw strength. This word is actually a word that intensifies or modifies a word, kind of like an adverb. All right, so instead of saying it's good, it adds intensity. It's very good. It's miad good. It's I'm angry, I'm angry. No, no, I'm very angry, right? This is how this works. I'm happy. No, I'm very happy. It's a word of emphasis. It's a word of emphasis. Loving God with all your miad is speaking about the concept of devoting every moment, every possibility, all your capacity, all your opportunities, everything that you have for God. And it's a broad word. It's a broad word, but it's the word that Jesus had in mind. Mark 12, 30 to 31. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is what he's talking about. He's saying amplify it all. Everything that makes you, you, amplify that in the way that you love God. As we prepare to close, I want you to consider the fact that this prayer was prayed twice a day. Twice a day. It's designed to be an anchor. Now they got into some religious stuff and they had to do 659 other things and became pretty meaningless. But if we can return to its original meaning, it will help you. It'll help me. And as I was thinking about this message, I was thinking about that same Forge meeting last week when I was sitting at a table with my friend Ed Thompson over here. We were talking and he was sharing, you know, about how he tries to live for Jesus every day. He said, it may sound simple. It may sound trite, but I, since, since I was very early age, I started to just live every day imagining that Jesus is just with me wherever I go. Driving in the car, he's sitting next to me. Sitting having lunch with you, he's sitting next to me. Out and about, he's walking with me. And he begins to tell us about how, because then when like thoughts of sin or temptation come, he's like, well, well, there's that and here's Jesus. What do you say? Right? Business opportunities maybe. Oh, it's, I can make a lot of money there, but Jesus, what did you say? Relational conflict comes. Man, this person is hard, but Jesus, what do you say? Jesus is there in everything. Jesus is there. Now, Ed's just a guy like you and me, so he hasn't done this perfectly, but that's a pretty good plan, Ed. It's a pretty good plan to be able to give Jesus your whole life, to just remember that he's there. And what does he have to say 
about what you're thinking about, about what you're watching, about what you're meditating on, about what you're considering, oh, about what you're doing, about what you want, about who you are, really, in here, in here. The Shema, it expresses the foundation for what would later become Christian living, whole heart devotion. And Jesus understood it. And then, kind of building on everything that I've said, Jesus shares this final word with his disciples. It wasn't the last thing he said, but it was one of the most important. It comes from John 13, 34. I'll read this as I close. A new commandment I give you. Yeah, you've heard all those other ones. Here's a new one for you. Love one another. Remember, God is love. You can only give it if you get it from him. Love one another. As how? As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, everyone, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And my friends, we cannot give away what we don't have. Love is not what you think about and what you feel. It is who God is. It is his truth. It is his ways. It is his affections. And when we have that to give, we can truly love others, love him, love ourselves, and be the holistic person that he's called us to be. Let me pray for you. Go ahead and bow your heads. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love. We thank you for the truth in the scriptures. We thank you, God, for the painstaking way that you unfold what love really is and how you went first and what your plan is for us and how we're broken inside, but you have made a way of salvation, of change, of total healing, of transformation, and that truly, not only can we become a new person, we must become a new person when we are found in you. And God, I thank you that you didn't leave us to just figure it out on our own, but you gave us, you gave us your word, and you gave us your spirit, and you gave us each other that all point back to the reality of who you are, a loving God whose love knows no end towards us. Right now in this moment while everyone's head is bowed and we've been considering the love of God, and maybe you heard that Ezekiel passage and said, I'm going to take out that old heart and give you a new one. Maybe you've heard about Jesus. Maybe you've been coming to church for a long time. Maybe you've done some Christian stuff. But as you hear this message today, you thought to yourself, man, I keep trying and trying, but I think my heart is still that same old heart of stone. And I need it to be changed into a heart of flesh that God can use. With no one looking around, if that's you and you say, I need a new heart today, I need to surrender to Jesus and have him change my heart, would you just slip your hand up just long enough for me to see it? I want to know who I'm praying for this morning. Thank you. I see 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 you. Listen, church, you're never the only one. We had some in the first, some here. I see you. Perhaps the best news of all is that you don't have to be stuck with the old you. Jesus has a new you for you with a new heart and a new spirit. And it's called being born again. So right now, if you just raise your hand, I want you to pray this with me. And also, if you're a follower of Jesus already, just pray this with them and with me in solidarity. Everyone repeat after me. Jesus, I come to you today. I've been a sinner with a hard heart. And I need a Savior who will give me a new one. I thank you that you made a way. I thank you that you made me. I thank you that even though I have sinned against you. You came and took my place. You lived a perfect life. You died a death you did not deserve. And after three days, you raised to life again. Today, I put my hope in you. I put my trust in you. And I put my heart in your hands. 
would you take it? Would you change it? And would you make it how you intended it to be? Forgive me of my sins. Make me a new person in your image. Today I decide I will follow you all the days of my life. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Everybody said, amen.